last four weeks here at Greenville Oaks, we've been talking about uh, the future. And we've been talking about the future because the future is, is really what this has all been leading up to. We've been walking over the last nine months through uh, this series called Rooted. And Rooted is about these symbols, about who Jesus is. It's really the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we've walked through all of this, but there's a promise that is the end of the good news. And that promise is about a God who promises to restore all things. And so I've had a lot of good feedback, and I appreciate the good feedback. I've had some other feedback as well. And, uh, and, and it's a challenge to think about new concepts and try to discover, you know, what, it, what does God really mean when he lays out Scripture? What is the future? So it's not so important that we all agree on the end of all things. What's important is how does our view of the future impact our present? How does our view of what God is going to do change our lives today? And, and that's the question I think I've received most that I really want to address this morning is why does this matter? Why does it matter what we believe about the future and what God will do? And I actually love that question, and I want to spend today talking about an answer to that question. And I want to answer that question by first talking about a famous atheist named Madeline Murray O'Hare. Now, Miss O'Hare was involved, you may remember, in the famous Supreme Court case having to do with public schools and prayer. And, and when Miss O'Hare was asked to define atheism as a part of that court case, this is her definition that she gave for atheism. She said, an atheist believes that a hospital should be built instead of a church. An atheist believes that a deed must be done instead of a prayer said. An atheist strives for involvement in life and not escape into death. He wants disease conquered, poverty vanished, and war eliminated. And when I hear that description, I'm thinking, well, I believe in most of that as well. Wait, am I an atheist? No, 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 that's not what I think. But, but there's, there's a point that Miss O'Hare's making I think we need to hear. And that is that she thinks historically Jesus' followers are people who don't care that much about this life and the impact it's made. It's more about escapism to another kind of life. And here's the struggle. We know if we look at history that Christians have been involved in all kinds of great works. Christians have have built most of the hospitals that Miss O'Hare talks about when it comes to Western civilization. Christians have also been involved in the fight against slavery and and its abolition. Christians have been involved in the civil rights movement. But we know in the same way, just as Miss O'Hare does, that Christians have stood in the way of the abolition of slavery and stood in the way of the civil rights movement and continue to in some ways. And here's Here's what I believe. What you believe about the future impacts your behavior when it comes to the modern 21st century issues, just like those in the past. And if you believe in an escapism, it's easy to kind of believe, well, what we do here doesn't matter because God's going to take care of it in the end. But if you believe in the restoration of all things, that God is bringing this to an end that's about restoring all things for good, that means we have to be caught up in that struggle. But I'll come back to Miss O'Hare a little bit later. Let's pray as we begin our time in the Word this morning. God, I thank you so much for this story, for this, these symbols, for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I thank you for this not just because of what this uh, gives us assurance of in our salvation, God. But I realize that I'm a person who's in need of salvation every single day. I'm being saved from certain things that are not a part of your future, and I'm being saved for certain ways of life that are a part of your future. So God, on a day like this, we walk in with all kinds of struggles and questions, and I just 
I pray today, God, that you would remind us again of who we are and what your future is and what we have to do with that now. Father, I pray uh, this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. I want to read this morning from the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles or your phones or tablets with you, open with me, me, if you would, or scroll down to, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Now, a lot of Sundays, I'm all over Scripture. This morning, we're going to camp in in this passage, okay? So you can stay here and be assured uh, that this is where we'll spend time. I want to read this story from Luke 10. It's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. Um, And so I want to read here uh, uh, from verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there. Eat and eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcome, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom for that town. Now what is Jesus up to here? You've been following along in the Gospel of Luke. You know that Jesus has come along. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He's healing people. He's doing miraculous works. But he's also raising up a group of leaders who will take his place once he dies and he ascends to be with the Father after his resurrection. And so he's engaged in coaching and mentoring these 12 disciples. And here we find there's actually more than just the 12. There seems to be 72 that he sends out on this mission. So it's not just the 12. There are others that have gathered around out of the crowds that have taken an interest in Jesus' teaching and his ministry. And so when I do mentoring and coaching, when I've received it, this is how mentoring usually works. I think Jesus follows this model. If you're a coach or a mentor, you begin by, I do, and the one I'm mentoring watches, right? And then it moves to a place where I do And I bring that person along, and they begin to help me in whatever I'm doing. Well, then it transitions big time in the next step, because it's not the mentor doing, then we pass the work off to the mentee, to the person who's receiving this. They begin to do, and and the mentor watches and, and actually helps in that time. But then it comes to a point where the mentor launches that new apprentice out to do the work and, and, and to engage and watch and help and mentor continuing. But you see the progression that happens, right? First, the mentor has to do and show, and then they kind of pass off that task to those that follow. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's sending out the 72. What does he say to them? He says some interesting things. So I want you to go out, and I don't want you to take a purse, bag, or sandals with you. So I want you to go out like lambs among wolves. Now, how many of you want to sign up for that mission, right? Lambs among wolves, that is a precarious place. Sending them out with it, without what they need, sending them out into danger, into harm's way in some sense. But I do like this part. He says, okay, I want you to go into homes and eat what's set before you. That sounds really good. Unless you've been on a couple of mission trips I've been to and you wonder what's put before you, right? 
But they're to go into these homes, they're to eat what's set before them, they're to pronounce the kingdom of God, proclaim peace on these houses. This is the mission that God calls them out on. It's a daunting mission, isn't it? And here's what I found about evangelism as I've been taught it, as I've thought about how we share the good news with others. Most often the way I've thought about evangelism has been about how do I invite people onto my turf so that I can share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. This works out a couple of ways. One way is the, the gift of hospitality in our homes, right? We, we, we prepare a meal, we clean the house, we invite someone over, we, we build a relationship hoping at some point to share good news with them. Uh, another way we do this is we might invite friends or neighbors to church with us. It's to invite them onto, to our turf so they might hear the good news of Jesus. But that's not how Jesus commands these disciples to do it. What Jesus commands these disciples to do is to give up home field advantage. He invites them to walk in and receive hospitality rather than to offer hospitality. Now that is, that's backwards. That's counterintuitive to the way I think about the world. Some of you have gifts of hospitality. Those are great gifts. Don't me, hear me saying we don't extend hospitality. But he sends these people out expecting to receive hospitality. And I love this because there's something that is so important about the idea of reciprocity in our lives. And I don't know about you, but it is so easy for me to not want to ever owe anyone anything. To always want to be the one who gives rather than the one who receives. And that puts us in a position of power, doesn't it? When we're the ones who are always engaging and giving, and it's almost like the debt's always owed to us. But Jesus sends them out, and he sends them off of home-field advantage. He sends them into the comfort of someone else's home. This is going to be a a relationship of reciprocity rather than a relationship of, of someone coming in and offering all the help. It preserves the dignity of the other, which is important. And I'm wondering if in our mission work, this is something important for us to get. It seems strange to expect hospitality, but what God says is, there are going to be people who welcome you into their home. You eat what's set before you. You act well in front of them, but some are going to receive this peace, and some are not going to be people of peace. But you'll be surprised by what you find, because you'll find people of peace in this situation. Now, we're going to come back to Luke 10 in a little bit, because I want to talk about the mission report of what happens with these 72. But before we do that, I want to come back to to Miss O'Hare. Now, on the one hand, I I agree with Miss O'Hare. At times, Christians have preached the resurrection as if it was a doctrine that maintained the status quo. In fact, that's what this whole series is trying to prompt us away from. Growing up, my, my understanding of faith and of heaven led me to do nothing. In fact, it wasn't prompting me to do things. It was prompting me not to do certain things so that I didn't get kicked out of the kingdom of God, right? This is what I don't do, not so much this is the life I've been called to. And so it led me to kind of sit on my hands, not make any mistakes, say my prayers, read scripture, go to church. Those are all great things, but but it didn't challenge me to challenge the status quo, really. The, The goal was to do anything that wouldn't put my salvation in question, not to do things that would challenge the world as it is. And that's the criticism that Miss O'Hare is leveling at Christians, that that we're keepers of the status quo. And it's a similar criticism to what Karl Marx once said about uh, about Christians. He said, religion is the opiate of the masses. What did he mean by saying that? He said, religion's like this drug that we hand out to people. To kind of numb them to life in the current situation. It's to promise them life in in the hereafter. And if we promise them life in the hereafter, his critique of Christianity is they won't do anything to mess up the way things are in this world, right? And that's the task of Christianity is to keep the status quo by promising something in the days to come. 
And I got to say, I, I don't believe that's the call of Jesus. I think Karl Marx mistook Christianity, but he mistook it because he saw it so often. But I don't believe that's our calling. Uh, we follow a Jesus who rose from the dead. If status quo is a part of anything God does, I've got to question what he was doing in raising Jesus from the dead. We serve a God who raised somebody from the dead back to life, and he promises to, how in the world can a religion that's a keeper of the status quo emerge from that? No, we do everything we can to fight against the effects of death, because this death is not God's desire in this world. And that's why what we believe about the future matters, because if your future view of the future has nothing to say about slavery or poverty or or child trafficking, I'm just not compelled by it. If your view of the future leads you to say this world is not my home without also leading you to act to change what's wrong in the world, I'm not compelled by it. And I'll tell you, the students that I spent the last 24 hours with won't be compelled by it either. And if I'm honest and if we're honest with ourselves, I think we would all kind of say, we don't want that kind of life either. Because if our answer to what the question of suffering is, is to call people to just hold on and wait for God to do something in the afterlife, then Karl Marx is right. But Karl Marx didn't fully understand about the Christian resurrection. Because the resurrection, the Christian story, isn't about somewhere else. It's about God making this place what it needed to be. It's why C.S. Lewis says the people who made the biggest difference in this world were the ones who care the most about the next. Because this world matters. God cared it. He loves it. That's why he sent Jesus into it. I think Jesus cared about this world. He was sent into this world because God loved the world so much he was willing to send Jesus into it to the earth. But but Jesus didn't just come here to give us a a fire insurance policy or a way to the afterlife. Jesus also came to give us an abundant life in the meantime. And so uh, one of the things that I see in the life of Jesus is he does all these miracles. My question is, why, why does he do all these miracles? What's the point of them? And I love the way the Gospel of John talks about the miracles of Jesus. John doesn't call the miracles miracles. He calls the miracles signs. And what do signs do? Signs point to another reality. You don't go up to the sign at Burger King and say, I'd like a hamburger, right? The sign points you to the place where you get a hamburger. Have it your way, right? You go to the place where it ha- the sign points to another reality altogether. And so when Jesus does these miracles, they're not just magic tricks. These miracles are, are, are signs, signposts to everyone in this world to say, this is what God's future world will look like. It'll be a place where demon possession isn't a problem. It'll be a place where sickness and the lame are able to walk and be healthy. And then he does the most incredible sign. You remember the last one he does, or at least the last one before the resurrection? He raises Lazarus from the dead. Now, I always have to think about this from Lazarus' perspective, because we have so much anxiety in our lives about death and what's it going to be like. It seems like a great gift that Jesus offers Lazarus his his life back, but you know, Lazarus is going to die again. He has to go through that anxiety about death twice. Part of me is thinking, thanks Jesus, it's great to have my life back, but I don't want to go through that mess again, right? But what what is Jesus doing when he raises Lazarus from the dead? He's he's giving this as a sign to everyone who's present to say, one day this is the way the world's going to be. Death will be no more, it'll be swallowed up in victory. One day death will die. One day we will live forever. But it's easy to talk about Jesus, isn't it? Jesus had some kind of power we don't seem to have in our 
ability to create these signs. So what about us? What kind of power do we have? What does it mean for us to live as representatives of God's future in a world as broken as it is today? A couple of weeks ago, Holly and I had the opportunity to go to New York City on vacation. and It was funny, New York City's changed in the last couple of years. There's some new buildings that have gone up, but probably the biggest change in New York City is people walking around on their cell phones playing Pokemon Go. I don't know if crazy. Everyone's like, Central Park, we got to find our next Pokemon, right? In fact, we, we walked into to, to Wicked. We watched Wicked when we were there, and the way they calmed the crowd down and told us to turn off their phones, if you don't play Pokemon Go, I apologize, by the way, you're not going to get this, but he said, uh, you can turn your phones off, don't worry, in this theater, all they have is Rattata. Uh, you can turn off your phone, nothing else good is here, and everyone's like, oh, Rattata, yeah, let's turn this thing off. Like, it, the world's changed, it's amazing. So we walk into New York City, and, and here's this city that's full of life. We love this city. It's full of everything that we could ever want or, or desire. There's more image of God in New York City than in any other place in big cities than in anywhere else on earth because the image of God is so closely tied. And this is why creativity happens in large cities, right? Because the image of God bounces off one another. Iron sharpens iron. I love something about big cities. But one day we went and we visited and did the tourist thing, but one day we went to the, to the 9-11 memorial. I want to tell you, There's nothing like being in downtown New York City in the hustle and bustle, and you walk into this memorial area, and everything changes. And if you've been to a memorial before, maybe it's not the 9-11, maybe it was the Oklahoma City or Columbine Memorial. I've been to these spaces. It's like sacred space, isn't it? Certain things you don't do, you don't smile and take a picture with Freedom Tower behind you. There's just this reverence to this area. There's this acknowledgement of the pain And what brought humans to come together and do this kind of destruction? If you've ever been to that kind of site, you understand. And I stood there trying to comprehend how can evil end up like this? How can can the human spirit and our tie to one another be broken so vastly that this is the response to, to life that we would take it and snuff it out in this way? And the question that was on my mind as I was sitting there staring at all this as I was rolling my hand over the stones that are etched, the names on the fountains outside and hearing the water pour over. The question I was asked is, how does the good news get a hearing in a place like this? With all the bad, with all the challenge, with all the death, with all the destruction, with all the remembrance that's there, how in the world would, would Jesus come in and speak a word of good news here? And I I just am not convinced that a promise of the afterlife answers the questions that are needed for those who lost loved ones in that situation. It's a comfort. It gives great hope to us to know where our loved ones are. But I'm convinced that God would want us more than just to whisper hope about the future. He would want us, as we look at places where atrocities have happened like this, as you stand at Auschwitz or other places you've been, He wants us to do something about it. And there's so many times where I ask God that question, God, why do you allow suffering to happen? You know what I think God wants to respond in response with? He wants to ask me the same question. Tell him, why do you allow suffering to happen? Why why does the church not stand up and be what the church should be? And that, that question has gripped me in these moments that when I want to ask God, I'm wondering if God's asking us the same one. I've empowered you with my Holy Spirit. And you're to live as my people in the midst of destruction and in the midst of injustice, in the midst of all that goes wrong in this world. It's your job to live as salt and light, not just promise people life in the sweet by and by. Madeline Murray O'Hare and Karl Marx remember 
Christians who stood in the way of the abolition of slavery. They equate Christianity with Christians who opposed it then and still oppose racial integration and reconciliation today. But they forgot Christians like Martin Luther King Jr. and others who marched with him who dreamed and spoke of a different future. In his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, King says these words, which are words of accusation against me. And maybe you'll hear them as such as well again today in the climate we're in. He said, the white moderate clergy, me, are trying to tell the African Americans, why are you so worked up about all this? Don't you know that in heaven it won't be like this? Aren't those the exact words almost of Karl Marx, right? Opiate of the masses, you're promising them this? And King said in response, he said, you're promising us pie in the sky when we die, but we would have nothing to do with it. You know one of the main reasons that slaves in America refused to buy into themselves and their identity as slaves alone is because they believed in a future that would be different. They believed that future was impacting their present moment. They would not take on the identity that the slave owners wanted them to, to take on. They sang the songs of revival, reminding themselves of who they are and what God's future would be. It was their view that the future would actually help them to reform the present. And King rightly critiqued the white moderate clergy of his day, saying, I have watched many churches commit themselves completely to otherworldly religion, which makes a strange unbiblical distinction between the body and the soul, between the sacred and the secular. Church, one of the questions that, that haunts me and will continue to haunt me for the rest of my life, and I want to pass this question on to you for it to haunt you as well. I've asked this question before, And it's just the question that I look at life through this lens. And it's the question, what is it 50 years from now that my children and my grandchildren will look at me and say, how could you have not spoken up on behalf and done something about this injustice? It's so clear. How could you have not done it? And I got to tell you, there will be moments 50 years from now to things I'm blind to right now where all I'll be able to say is, I didn't see it. And I, I make those confessions to God and I wish I had done more, but there are other things that I'm beginning to see. I'm beginning to ask that question often. I'm beginning to feel convicted about things that must change. And I've got to do something about that or I hold guilt about those things. And as long as we keep pointing people to say, this is about escapism, we don't have the motivation in our lives to do something about them now. But if we see God's future as it is, all of a sudden it enlivens our task and all of our vocations and all of our work To be a part of the kingdom now. And that's my question to you is Monday morning, tomorrow morning when you go into work, how are you going to be a part of God's future coming into the present? That may be hard for you to figure out because you're thinking, this is my task, and I don't know how that exactly equates to the kingdom. Others of you are enlivened in your task because you know the kingdom is tied into what you do each and every day. But it's a question we need to ask. How is what you do Monday morning when you go to your desk or when you take care of your kids or when you go and, and pick up the broom as a janitor or where you, whatever it is you go to do? How is that going to impact and bring in God's future to the present in ways it's not currently here? Which brings me back to Luke chapter 10. Remember, Jesus sends out the 72. He tells them to go without purse bag or sandals. He tells them to announce the kingdom of God, to pronounce peace, eat whatever's ever set before you. And, and, and if it's anything like the mission trips I go on, there's always this opportunity or desire when I come back to tell the story, right? You ever been on a mission trip and you want to tell everyone around you about what happened? 
And I imagine them coming back to Jesus and they're, they're telling their stories about, you won't believe what happened. We ate this and it was awful. And we, but we trusted you, Jesus. And there are others that are like, look, you won't believe that we found people of peace in the city. We would have never imagined so-and-so to be a person of peace, but we announced the kingdom of God and they welcomed us in and they're going to join us next Sunday in our house church. I'm just imagining these stories that, that these disciples, 72, are coming back with. And I imagine they usually, they would come back like this because everybody who comes back from a mission trip says these words. I don't think it's any different in the first century. Man, I, I gave a lot to go on this trip. It was expensive and, and I took off a week of work, but I'll tell you what, I received more on that trip than I ever put in. I know those words have come out of your mouth that you've given to others. You always receive more than what you give. But, but Scripture actually tells us what happens when they tell their story, when they give their mission report. If, if you have your Bibles open, go to, go to Luke 10 again. I want to read verses 17 and 18. This is the mission report. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, and get these words, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The disciples are doing normal mission trip stuff. They're feeding people probably. Actually, they're being fed in this sense. They're, they're, they're feeding people the word of God. They're helping people. They're pronouncing peace. They're pronouncing the kingdom of God. And what do they say? They say, great things. The demons submitted to us in, our, in, in, in your name. Amazing stuff, right? All things they can see that they're reporting on. But what does Jesus say in response? You have no idea what happened when you were doing those earthy, normal, everyday things. When you were eating at tables. You know what I saw, Jesus says? I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I love this passage. Because what it tells me is, what we do matters far more than what we can see or what we'll even know on this earth. We see the reality of of, of bricks that get moved in the houses. We see the reality of wells dug in the ground and what it can do for villagers. We see the reality of baptisms after baptisms changing a, a nation. We see all that we can see visibly. But in the unseen world, in the cosmic realm, Jesus says, I see things you can't possibly see. Satan fell like lightning when you were sitting at tables with your friends and neighbors. And if that doesn't enliven you to your work on Monday morning at 8 o'clock, I don't know what will. In eight days, some of you are going to enter back into school. And you're going to sit in front of students. And you're going to teach them about math or science or whatever it is that your area is. Or you'll administrate or you'll, you'll serve in some way in those schools. And you might report back home some frustrations to your spouse or someone that you care about. You might share some really good things that you saw in excitement, but you know what Jesus can see that you can't? He sees Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When you do your work, whatever venue it is, whatever vocation you have, I want you to understand this because sometimes we walk away and we think it doesn't matter. Sometimes your legacy will not be buildings with your name on it. Sometimes your legacy will not be what you can see. It will happen in the people you poured into that do works that happen after your death that you'll never get to see. And this is what I can't wait to see in heaven one day. One day we're going to enter into the first hour of heaven and we're going to be surprised by who's there and we're going to, it all's going to make sense in that moment. But there's going to come a day when we see the impact of the small things we could have never seen when we were on this earth. People are going to be there, they're going to tell stories about your work and your pouring into people 
that made a difference to people for the kingdom of God for a lifetime. If you could just see this, and it, that's the problem, we can't see this, can we? It's, 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 it's intangible, it's, it's the realm that we can't see, but Jesus sees things that we do that have far greater implications than the small ways we see activity. This has been a long series, Rooted has. We've got one more week where I'm going to summarize and really boil this all down so we can take this with us. And my, my goal after next week is if you have a conversation with a friend and you want to know how to share the good news of Jesus, I, you can do it as simply as writing it down on a napkin, these symbols, and telling the story of Jesus and connect it to your story. I'm going to try to boil it down as simply as I can next week to sum this whole thing up. But I started this series about the future trying to start in a humble place to say, you know, I, I've got a picture of how I think this will all end, but I see into a fog just like everyone else does. We don't know this side of eternity exactly what it will look like. And I want to end this series with the same humility. If you disagree with me, just fine, okay? It's, it's okay to think something completely different than this. What matters is how does your view of the future impact your moment in the present? How does it align with Scripture? That's what I want to point us towards. So I want to point us back to a a quote that N.T. Wright uh, wrote that was helpful at the beginning of the series. I want to remind us of it again as we humbly look at this again. All language about the future, as any economist or politician will tell you, is simply a set of signposts pointing into the fog. You don't know what it's going to be like. And for some of us, that's nerve-wracking. It's, we don't know what that transition looks like. We don't, know where our, we don't have all of our questions answered like we'd like. But I want to close this series, not with the words of N.T. Wright, words of humility. I want to close this series with the words of C.S. Lewis, because this is where the hope is for me. So wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, whatever you believe about the end, I think this is the truth. Guesses, of course, only guesses. If they are not true, something better will be. You can try to dream it up, church about what it's going to be like, but I guarantee you it's better than the best dream in this room we have of what eternity will be like for those who are found in Jesus Christ. So go teach your students. And go eat meals around tables. In fact, go to places where you depend on their hospitality rather than just the gift that you have to give your own. Walk out and proclaim the kingdom of God. Get in some interesting messes by telling people things that you think the Spirit's guiding you to say. That they're going to say, what in the world are you telling me that for? There are going to be other moments, though, where they say, that's just the word I needed. That's just the prayer I needed in the season. I needed good news and you gave it to me. But here's what I want you to see. No matter what the response is to in those moments, Jesus sees things that we can't possibly see. There's impact to every decision in your life in the cosmic realms for good or for evil. But I love this picture. As the disciples report back on all the great things they do, it's so much bigger than that. It may in the same way in our lives, Jesus see what we don't see. That as we give our random acts of kindness in the name of Jesus, that as we speak a good word on behalf of God, that as we drill water wells or we raise up orphans who don't have parents to be established for a life ahead, God sees Satan fall like lightning. This is the word of the Lord. Let's close with prayer. God, our faith is so small because our eyes can't see all that you see. And, and all we can do is point as if in a fog, God, to your future because we, we see great things on this earth and we can point to glimpses of it and signposts, but it, is, it, it pales in comparison to the goodness that you will provide your people. 
God, we thank you for the rest that you provided the saints long ago. Our loved ones who passed on this deposit of faith to us, we thank you that they rest in peace in this moment. But the, the longing of our hearts is not to rest in peace. It's not escapism. It is a renewed new heaven and a new earth. God, it's your promise that you give us. That all creation would be restored and we get to see who you are. We get to see you face to face. We long for this day. Even more than we can even put into words, we long for this reunion. God, as we go about our work, would you give us a new lens to see? Would you allow us glimpses of the fruit that's born out of the seeds we plant? God, I, I thank you so much for your church and for the ways this is happening, for the ways I see our, our youth rising up for revival, for the ways I, I see our city being called to justice by people in our own city who are raising the cry of the oppressed and being a voice for the voiceless. God, there is signs of life. There are signs of hope. May we join in those causes. May we join you and partner with you in what you're already blessing. And we long to see the day when Satan will fall for the last time. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.